Guys, I promise that during the basketball season, I really try to refrain my amount of Duke analogies and references, but I'm just, I got to get it out. Last night was awesome. It was, it was awful, and then it was awesome, and then it was awful again, and then it was spectacular. So I just, I almost feel bad for Carolina until I realize it's Carolina, and then I don't at all. So I just, that's nothing to do with anything. I just, I got to say it, it was awesome. So anyway, now that said, we can begin. I want to start with a story uh, of a man who is a bodybuilder by trade, and so if you need a reference point, just imagine me, and he was out of work, and so he was looking in the newspaper, and he came across an advertisement that the local zoo was hiring, and so the next day, he goes to the zoo, desperate for anything, and to his uh, maybe non-excitement, he finds that the only position they have left available is for someone to play that of the part of a monkey. You see, over the next couple of days, they were going to have a lot of kids coming through the zoo, and they did not have any monkeys, and so they needed someone to uh, wear a suit and impersonate one. And so he takes the job because he's desperate. The next day, he gets to the zoo uh, before the sun rises, climbs into the monkey suit, and they tell him all he has to do is walk pensively around the monkey cage and uh, as the kids throw him peanuts and bananas to eat them and then swing as best as he can through the trees. And so after about eight or ten hours, uh, the bananas were getting the best of him. He became quite nauseated as he's swinging from branch to branch. He becomes quite dizzy, and he falls into his dismay into the lion's pit, lion's den next door. And so as he's lying on the ground screaming, help, help, the lion looks over to him and says, if you don't shut up, we'll both lose our jobs. (laughs) And I share that story because it's funny. But I also share it because all of us have probably have times in our lives where life does not go the way that we want. And the question we're looking at this morning is this. How do we respond when life doesn't go as planned, right? How do we respond when we're playing our arch rival up 15 points with four minutes to go, up 10 points with two minutes to go? How do we respond when they hit an amazing buzzer beater to go to overtime, right? How do we respond when we're beating them by five points with less than a minute to go in overtime? And they beat us at the buzzer on the eight-year anniversary of them doing the very same thing eight years prior. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not kidding. But more seriously, right, how do we respond when maybe life doesn't go as you wish, right? Maybe, maybe just even a year ago, things are radically different than you thought that they would be. How do we respond when relationships break down, when financial provision is desperately needed but is not coming in, when uh, there's health diagnoses or any number of things that are difficult in our life and we all have them? How can we, how should we respond when that happens? And that is exactly what we're going to be talking about this morning. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Esther chapter 6. If you don't, there's a black one somewhere around you. And if you want to, if you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. Now, really quickly, I'll try to kind of give you as best I can, if you're new with us, catch you up to where we are today. So at least you can understand the story. Uh, Esther takes place about 480 BC in the empire of Persia. Uh, Esther is uh, one of the main characters of the story. She is a Jewish queen at this point of the Persian Empire. She comes queen because the previous queen was deposed of, and then the king, Xerxes, or Ahasuerus as his Hebrew name, uh, basically sleeps with a number of women throughout the empire to choose his favorite to replace the queen, and that ends up being Esther. Now, Esther's cousin is also her leader, legal guardian. Uh, as she was orphaned as a child, his name is Mordecai, uh, and he is also a main character of the story. And what we saw last week was that uh, Mordecai, or a couple weeks ago, Mordecai uh, finally, even though he had assimilated quite well into Persian culture, he probably was not very faithful to the God of Israel, he comes to a point where he's not going to assimilate any further because 
is this man named Haman. Uh, we're not told why, but he gets promoted to be second to the king in all of the kingdom. It's significant because Haman is an Agagite, which was a mortal enemy of the Jewish people. And so as second in command, he commands everybody to bow to him as they would the king, but Mordecai refuses to do so. And so Haman finds out that not only, once he finds out that Mordecai is not only not bowing, but is Jewish, he decides that he is going to sign a decree into law, basically doing a genocide against all of the Jewish people and not just Mordecai. And so Mordecai finds out about this, and so he goes to the queen, and he tells Esther, go beg for the Jewish people's life on our behalf, right? The, queen, the king doesn't know Esther is Jewish at this point, and so he asks her to maybe she, maybe, the, maybe she can convince the king to reverse the edict. And so what we saw last week was that Esther asked uh, the Jewish people to fast, and they prayed over the course of three days. She goes to the king and requests to meet with him, which could have, she could have been killed because you were not allowed to approach the king without him first... Uh, initiating it. And so she approaches the king. He does not kill her. He, he says, what would you like? He says, if it pleases the king, I would love a, to throw a banquet for you, the king, and for Haman. He, uh, he says, okay, that sounds good. And so chapter five last week uh, was the first night they have the banquet, which was a big deal for Haman because that never happened to be having a meal with just the king and the queen. As he's leaving after that meal, uh, at that meal, Esther says, the king says, what would you like? What is it that you request? And Esther says, I will tell you tomorrow. Let's basically have one more banquet and I will let you know my request tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow night. And so Haman leaves this banquet very excited, and yet he walks past Mordecai, who does not bow to him. And so he's very upset, very angry about this. He gets home. He talks to his wife and some of his friends about what is happening, and they suggest, why don't you go ahead and hang and impale and kill Mordecai tomorrow, not wait for the edict to come to pass. Go ahead and get rid of him. He thinks it's a great idea, and so he's really excited to go before the king and tell him what his plans for Mordecai are, and that's where we pick up the story, Esther chapter 6, verse 1. It says this, that night sleep escaped the king, so he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. So the chronicles or the annals of the king were kept records of the happenings in all of the kingdom. He's not sleeping this night, and so he requests that some of these records be read to him. Verse 2, uh, they found the written report of how Mordecai had informed on Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance when they planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. The king inquired, what honor and special recognition have been given to Mordecai for this act? The king's personal attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. And so the king comes across the record of what we read about in, in Esther chapter 2, where Mordecai finds out about an assassination attempt, tells the queen, and the queen tells the king on Mordecai's behalf. Now, this has happened a little over five years at the point of this, when this story, or when chapter 6 takes place, about five years after these events that had, had happened. And it's significant because typically when something like this happened, the king would reward uh, the person that found out about this assassination attempt handsomely and right away because they would want to encourage this type of behavior. So understandably, he's like, oh my goodness, we did not do anything for this man. We should do something about it because it is a big deal. And the king often right away would reward somebody for not only preserving the kingdom, but his own life. He finds out nothing has been done for this man. And so he says this, verse four, the king asks, who is in the court? Now, Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. The king's attendants answered him, Haman is here standing in the court. Have him enter. 
the king ordered. And so what's happening here is Haman happens to be the first one in the court that morning. He's likely there very excited about what he has planned for the day and to ask the king to uh, allow him to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had just constructed. And so he's the first one there. So Haman, or the king has him come in. It says this in verse 6. Haman entered and the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Haman thought to himself, who is it that the king would want to honor more than me? And so what's interesting is before Haman can even ask or say anything about the hanging of Mordecai, the king asks Haman how he should honor somebody that the king wants to honor. Now, of course, Haman assumes that there's probably nobody in the entire kingdom that the king wants to honor more than me. And so he's very excited about this. Now, we're reading this, especially if you're an original reader of this text, you're, you, you, you see the irony here because you know the king is not talking about Haman. He's actually talking about Mordecai. So that excites you. That's pretty funny. That's pretty awesome. And yet, at the same time, you would be dismayed because what's happening here is the king is going to ask Haman how Mordecai should be honored. And you're thinking, man, this stinks. Like, this is not fair. Why is Haman the one that gets to decide how, uh, how Mordecai should be honored? So you'd be excited, you'd think it was funny, and you'd also kind of be discouraged by it. And yet, what we're going to see is that Haman suggests the highest honors possible. Here's what he says, verse 7. Haman told the king, for the man the king wants to honor, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn, and a horse that the king himself has ridden, which has a royal crown on its head, Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor, parade him on the horse through the city square, and proclaim before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. And so, in other words, here's why this is such a significant honor. To wear the king's robe, that, a robe that he has actually worn, and to ride a king's horse that he has actually uh, ridden is considered the highest honor possible. It seems at that time, especially because the kings uh, were either gods themselves or at the very least chosen by the gods to rule, it was assumed that if you were able to wear a garment that the king has worn, that you would get some of his uh, deity magic, if you will, would pass on to you. This was a very big deal and it was public. Maybe to put it in more modern terms, and I just want to put politics aside for this example, but imagine that the Air Force One, the plane that the president gets to ride, comes to RDU to pick up you specifically, right? People would assume that you're a big deal. Like this is not something that normally happens. The Air Force One does not pick up any ordinary person. And yet here it is at RDU for you. People would assume you were important, you were significant, that you mattered. It would have been a very big deal. And that is what is happening to Mordecai here. Now, what's interesting is that Haman, of course, doesn't realize what is about to happen because he thinks the king is talking about him. It is an example of what it says in Proverbs chapter 16, or chapter 16, verse 18, where it says this, that pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Right? This is a prime example of what is happening here. That Haman's pride does not allow him to think that the king could honor or do anything for anybody else. And so he's He's making plans to do something that is actually going to end up humiliating him later on. And think of it this way, right? Think of maybe some of the, dis- the dumbest decisions that you have ever made, right? What, is, what, it, what goes into some of the dumbest decisions you have ever made? It's pride, and here's why. Likely, you and I think of one or two things, if not both, when we make decisions we know we shouldn't. One, we might be thinking that we can get away with it, right? That nobody's going to find out, that it's not going to be that big of a deal, and so we make a decision we know we probably shouldn't, 
because we think we can get away with it, or we assume that we are the exception to the rule. That yes, when people do these sorts of things, sometimes maybe they have negative consequences, but it won't happen to us, right? And we think that because we wouldn't actually do it if we think things would not go well for us, right? In other words, here's what we see from this text and how it applies to us today. That pride is the number one predictor of ongoing sin in your life. For you and for me, pride is the number one reason we continue to sin and struggle with our weaknesses that that have been long-term issues in our life. It's not always that pride maybe is the original reason why we do sin or make bad decisions, but if you think of the issues in your life that have been long-term weaknesses, long-term sin struggles, I would argue that for you and for me, pride is the biggest reason why we can't seem to move past it or shake it. Because pride is one of two things, right? It makes us think that we can handle it on our own, so we don't need to tell anybody, we don't need to say anything because we're strong enough. It's our pride making us think that we're stronger than we actually are, or it is our pride that keeps us ashamed of telling anybody, right? Because we have an image we want to keep up. We don't want people to think poorly of us, and so it's our pride that makes us think we're strong enough when we're not, or it makes us shame ourselves into not saying anything to anybody else. I'm reminded of a conversation I had a couple day, uh, days ago uh, with a guy that was basically saying, you know what, I, I, I haven't always been like this, but I, I really want to be faithful when it comes to sex and sexuality, and I really want to honor God in this area of my life. Well, what, what advice would you have for me to do this? And the advice for him is the same thing for all of us, right? That we need to be honest with other people about what is going on, right? We talked about it. I was like, man, if you just told the guys in your community group that what you were dealing with, it would be awesome in two ways. One, it would be good for you because you would have guys that would love you and encourage you and help support you as you try to take steps of faithfulness. And it would encourage them because you're not the only one that is in that situation, right? All of us have been in situations where maybe friends or people we care about uh, come to us. And when they're honest about a struggle or about a weakness, what do we often think? We often think, man, that's amazing, the courage that they would share that with us. And then it also encourages us to be honest about our own junk, right? That's why community groups are a great thing to be a part of. It's not just for us to study the Bible and to learn things, but it's also for us to be encouraged to grow closer to God. Pride is the number one predictor of ongoing sin in your life. It keeps it quiet. It keeps you from being honest with other people who God has placed in your life to help you. And so you and I can continue to struggle with things that God has provided Uh, ways for us to deal with because of our pride. It can often lead to our downfall, and it is certainly doing so for Haman. And so here's what happens next, verse 10. The king told Haman, hurry and do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not leave out anything you have suggested. So Haman took the garment and the horse He clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, crying out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. In other words, this is the ultimate role reversal and humiliation for Haman, right? Not only is the king not talking about Haman, but he's talking about his enemy Mordecai, and Haman has to be the one that parades him around the city square. It seems likely, as we read this story, that the king has no idea of the animosity between Haman and Mordecai. However, many of the king's court and many of the city of Susa would have known what was going on. And so this was a huge humiliation 
for Haman that not only is Mordecai his enemy being honored, but he's the one parading him around the city, honoring him and telling everybody about how great Mordecai is. And it kind of makes me think maybe in situations of my life of times that all of us have been humiliated, right? We've all experienced things that were humiliated. As somebody who doesn't really care what people think, I was like, man, what are some times, because I don't care what people think, which can be a good thing, but also can be a bad thing, uh, especially when you're a pastor and you don't care what people think often. Uh, but anyway, that's, I'm okay. I do care what you think. I care about you. But anyway, so I was like, man, what is the time that this happened? And I remembered the, probably the most humiliating thing that's ever happened to me was when I was a senior in college. So Christina and I, we were married at the time. And Christina's mom is a hairdresser. So she cuts hair for a living, which means she's very good at it. And we were living in Wilmington. That's where we went. And so when we would come back to the Raleigh area where uh, our families live, she would cut her hair and my hair for free, which was awesome. And so, but when we were in Wilmington, you know, guys cut their hair, at least that's, I don't know, maybe that's not always true, but in our experience, more often than women do. And so there would be times where we were not home and I would have to get a haircut. And I'm like, well, I don't got to pay for it then, so I don't want to pay for it here. So I was like, Christina, why don't you like watch your mom, how she cuts my hair, and then you cut it. It'd be awesome. <laughs> and so we, uh, we go and she cuts my hair and washes it. And so we're back in Wilmington. It's time for my first haircut. And so Christina gets the stuff out to cut my hair. We borrowed like, like clippers and stuff from a friend. And she like cuts the top part, whatever you do that. And then she starts cutting the side. And she gets the guard out and you, know, you shave the side. And then she takes the guard off the clippers. To which I said, what are you doing? And she said, well, my, my mom takes the, you know, the guard off at this point And she, uses, she just does it with her hand or whatever. And I said, that's great, but you're not your mom. Like, your mom's a professional at this and you're not. And she's like, no, it's fine. I don't need a guard. It'll be fine. Okay. Not 20 seconds later, and this is not an exaggeration, not 20 seconds later, I hear and I feel, vroom, she took a chunk, a chunk out of my head. Now, what's so embarrassing about this is it was too low to wear, to wear a hat to cover it. Like, there's nothing you could do about it. So I had two options. I could shave off my hair, all of my hair, because then no one would see it, but I was like, I don't want to do that. Or I could leave it. And so for the next two weeks, I'm sitting in class, like, trying to pull my hair over. Like, these two are like, what is, what, what is happening there? It looks like a hole in his head, right? It was awful. It was humiliating because it was embarrassing and people could see every day people saying, I mean, it was awful, right? Now, of course, there's nothing compared to what Haman is going through, but he is humiliated and we can all probably uh, relate to times that we have been humiliated in our life. And so here's how he responds, verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried off for home mournful and with his head covered. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that had happened. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. So Haman comes home, he's humiliated and he's grieved and he tells his wife and his friends what had happened. Now, if you're Haman at this point, you're probably really upset. Again, he's an Agagite. Uh, uh, Mordecai is Jewish, which is part of the animosity here. And the very people the night before that said you should kill Matt at Mordecai are now saying, stinks to be you, bro. Sorry. And you're like, you told me to do this, right? And now he's going to, now according to them, things are not going to go well for him. See, they had this idea that because Mordecai is Jewish, his God must be, uh, be, be, be giving him favor at this moment. And it's going to lead to your downfall. The very people that said you should do this are now the ones being like, I don't know who told you that. I, sh I wouldn't have you, right? He got terrible advice. And so here's how the chapter ends, verse 14. While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had 
prepared. So the last night was the first banquet. Tonight was going to be the second banquet, and it is not going to go at all how Haman had predicted. And what we see here all throughout Esther, but particularly in chapter 6, is this, that nothing happens outside of God's control. Nothing in this story, and it's the same for our lives, happens outside of God's control. You see, what's interesting is if you've been here for the series, you know that in, in Esther, two things that are difficult about the story is that it never mentions God's name, and we're never told the motivations behind the main characters and why they make certain decisions the way that they make them. We're not told that. And yet what we see is that God seems to be in control of all of it. I want to give you just a couple of examples just that are related to chapter 6 alone that shows us that what is happening here cannot simply be happenstance. And it's supposed to show us as readers that everything that has happened up to this point can't simply be luck. And so here's things that are relevant just to chapter 6, although you could do this to every chapter. What we see is that Mordecai, again, way back in chapter 2, happens to be the one that finds out about the assassination attempt on the king, Right? And then he happens to not get awarded originally when it happened, which was a very rare thing for that not to take place. And then the king just happens to have a sleepless night right before Haman is going to come and request that, Haman, or that Mordecai be killed. And not only does the king have a sleepless night, but the king happens to read the account of Mordecai saving his life at the very same night. And then Haman, of all people, happens to be the first one in the court that day and to be the one that the king asked how he should honor somebody that the king wants to honor. And not only that, because Haman is there, he is the one who happens to be the person that has to parade Mordecai around the city. And we also see, probably bigger than anything else, that Mordecai, who again is a Jew, happens to be honored right before Esther is going to approach the king and intervene for the Jews. We see story and circumstance and situation after situation that seems to be random events, and yet we see God's faithfulness all along. And this is significant because especially in a polytheistic culture of which Persia is in, the worldview at that time simply meant that if you gained the upper hand or your people or your country or a people group, it's not because your God was you know, the one true God. It's just because your God was the one who was maybe winning the, the, the spiritual battles at the moment, and so you are benefiting from it. And yet what we see as we read Esther is that the one true God is the one that was actually in control all along. And just like he was in control for Esther, it is the same thing that is true for us today. Uh, Karen Jobes, in her commentary of Esther in chapter 6, she sums it up this way of how this is relevant for us today. She says this, Consider how God has guided and directed your life. How did you come to meet and marry your spouse? Why are you living in the place you are? What circumstances led to your current job? God's care and protection for his children seldom come by mighty miracles, but constantly and inexorably with the unfolding circumstances of each day as one thing leads to another. Tiny miracles of God's providence direct your steps. And if we're honest, we can look back at things in our lives and we can actually see some of the ways that God has been moving. And so this is why it's important for us to know that God is in control of all things, is because God is over all things. He's always in control because God is over all 
things. There's nothing that, that takes him by the surprise. There's nothing that, that, that he doesn't see coming. And here's the thing about this, right? This might not be earth-shattering news to you if God exists and he's all-powerful, then of course he's over everything. Now, what's the tension with this is that we like this idea when good things happen, right? When good things happen, we love to say God is over it because that must mean he's giving us favor or he loves us or we've done something good and so he's, he's paying us back for it. Like we like this idea of God being over all things when life is good. The struggle, however, is what, how do we balance the fact that God is over all things when bad things happen? Right? How do we balance the fact that God is good and he's over all things when difficult things happen in our life? What are we supposed to do with it? It reminds me of what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. We talked about this uh, in December when we talked about what does it mean for Jesus to be a prince of peace. So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but I just want to reread it. Jesus here is talking to his disciples, and he's basically telling them, that you should be faithful, you should go out and tell people who I am and what I've come to do. And if you do this, things will not go well for you and many of you will probably die. In fact, all of them would be killed for claiming that Jesus was God and raised for the dead except for one. Now at this point, they don't fully understand all that's taking place, but he's basically saying difficult things will happen to you if you're faithful to me. And so he then says this in verse 26. He says, therefore, don't be afraid of them, the people that are per- will persecute you, Since there is nothing covered that won't be uncovered, and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim on the housetops. Tell people who I am and what I've come to do. To verse 28, don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent? But even the hairs on, of your head have all been counted. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. What this means here <clears throat> is that God is over even the painful things in our life. That God is over evil, even the suffering that, experiences, that we experience in our life. And so again, the question, what do we do when life doesn't go as planned? Or maybe for you this morning, what do you do when life feels like hell? Like if we're being honest this morning, some of us, some of you are sitting here and you are experiencing things right now that a year ago you would have never imagined. You are going through things, you are dealing with things right now that you would never have thought possible even a year ago. And what do you do in that situation? Or maybe for some of you, you've been dealing with some difficult situation for a very long time. And it's been hard and it's been difficult and you're not, you don't see what God's doing with it. You don't, see if you're, you don't know if you're ever going to get out of it. What do you do? See, what I would love to do is I would love to tell you that your breakthrough is coming. I would love to tell you that that financial provision that you so desperately are after is coming. That, that promotion is coming. That broken relationship will be restored. I would love to say that because then we can clap and we can sing, isn't God good? And yet we can't promise that. What's interesting is that we don't see any Mordecai-like examples at all in the New Testament. Again, Mordecai was uh, embarrassed. He was going to be killed. Things did not look like they were going to go well for him, and yet he decides to be faithful, and then he's promoted to the highest possible honors in the kingdom. And we look at that, and we say, well, that's going to happen to me. And yet when you read the New Testament, there is not a single example of that happening. But you know what there is? There's a lot of opposite things of that happening. For example, there's a lot of people who give their life to Christ and are killed, are beaten, are jailed, are are starved, are persecuted, that things do not go well for them. And so the honest reality of this situation is this, that you and I are not guaranteed that everything is going to be okay in our life. We're not. And yet, we are. 
Yet we are. And here's why. The good news of the gospel. What is the gospel? That Christ would come, God would come in the form of a man to live a life that we could not live, to die the most horrific thing possible in human history, that the creator would come to give his life, be beaten, mocked, scorned, killed, so that anybody who would trust and follow in him that would simply be honest about our condition and about our need for God would one day when we die get to experience the kingdom of God where there's no more pain, suffering, lying, hurting, cheating, none of that, that is full of grace and happiness and joy and contentment. All that is possible, not because of us, but because of Jesus. And what that means is we are not promised, just read the Bible, we are not promised that being faithful in this life means that you will get everything that you want. But you are promised that one day you will, and it's not because of you, it's because of what Christ has done for us. And so if you are in that moment this morning, if you're in a situation that feels like hell, and you're not sure what you should do or what to do, here is what we can do. And here's what we should do, and that's this, that you and I can remember the providence of God. If you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about this idea of providence. Providence is not just that God is in control of over, over all things and knows that everything will happen, which is true. Providence is specifically the protective care of God, that God is a good God who loves us and that cares for us. And as we read Esther, or maybe even particular chapter 6, as we saw some of those happenstances that just seemed to happen to happen, that God was actually there for all of it, and so it is true for you and for me, that you and I have to remember that God loves us, that God cares for us, even if in this life, our faithfulness does not give us the things that we so desperately want here and now. And so here's what I want to do. I want to read for you uh, Hebrews chapter 11. And I'm not going to stop. We'll read most of it. I'm not going to stop and explain very many things. What I want to do, especially if you're in a, a situation where you're suffering and you are in pain, I want to read God's word over us for us to be encouraged by it. And what's significant about Hebrews chapter 11 is it is full of examples of people who were faithful to God and yet did not see or experience the fruit of their faithfulness in this life. But it was because of, that God, of their faithfulness to God, even in the midst of difficulties, that God was pleased to be called their God. And so I'm going to read some examples here. The author of Hebrews is, is referencing stories in the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with all of these names and characters, that's okay. You'll still be able to get the main point. But this is to encourage us when life is hard, what do we need to do and how do we face it? Here's what the author of Hebrews says, chapter 11, verse 1. And if you want to read from the screen or maybe you just want to listen or maybe you just need to close your eyes and let God's word speak to you, you can do that. It says this. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is, what not, of what is not seen. For by it, our ancestors won God's approval. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. And even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. Right? He was faithful to God and his brother killed him. Verse, uh, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken away, so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what is not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. 
By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has its foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself, which was Abraham's wife, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered the one who had promised was faithful. Therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as innumerable as the giants of the sand of the seashore. The whole Israelite nation from which God would come would come from the faithfulness of this couple. Verse 13, these all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth." Now, those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return, but now they desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And then the author gives other examples of people who were faithful and then experienced a reward here on this earth. They actually saw the fruit of it, but then he ends the chapter by saying this, starting in verse 35. He says, other people were tortured, not accepting release, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they died by the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. And all these were approved through their faith. But they did not receive what was promised, since God has provided something better for us so that we would not be made perfect without us. In other words, what we see here is that those who were faithful didn't receive the reward that they wanted here in this life, but they held out to the hope that was in them, that one day God would right every wrong thing, and that one day those who follow and trust in Jesus would one day get to experience the kingdom of God where everything will be made right. And so as we read this again, the question for us is how do we respond when life doesn't go as planned? Here's what we need to do, and here's how we can remember the province of God. And that's really the point this morning, and that's that there are no providence, or there are no accidents in God's providence. There are no accidents in God's providence. Listen, nothing that is happening to you or that has happened or has been done to you has taken God by surprise. It's not that it happened in a way that he didn't understand, that he is still over all of it. And he is good even in the midst of hardships and difficulties. Now, let me be clear. This does, this does not mean that, that God's will or that we can't question why God does certain things. Sometimes, if maybe you've said this or you've experienced this, when something bad happens, people might say, well, we can't question God's will. It just is what it is. And I always want to say, have you read the scriptures? Have you read Psalms? All of it is full of God. Why are you doing this? God, where are you? We need to remember that he is a big God and he is not afraid of our questions. And yet in the midst of it, 
We are reminded that even as we doubt, even as we are unsure that God loves us and cares for us, and we see this, how he has providentially provided his son so that we could one day experience the gift of life that he has awaited everybody who trusts and follows in him. It reminds me of the story of Joseph, not Jesus' dad, Joseph, but Joseph in the Old Testament. Basically, he was a son, and he had a lot of brothers, and he was his dad's favorite son. His brothers were jealous. They did not like it, and so they end up selling him into slavery. He gets sold into slavery into Egypt, and he's really faithful, and yet a lot of bad things happen to him, and yet in spite of all of that, he eventually is promoted second in all of Egypt to the Pharaoh. And what, is, what happens at one point is he interprets a dream that Pharaoh has, basically saying that there's going to be some years of abundant a supply of grain and food, but that they need to save a portion of all of this grain, of all of this food, because after this, there's going to be a, a series of years where there's going to be extreme famine in Egypt, in the Middle East, in that area of the world. And so they, they save up all this food, all this grain, and then the famine hits, and because Egypt had excess, there were other parts, other people of the world in that region were coming to Egypt to beg for food. And as it so happens, his brothers, the very people that sold him into slavery, actually have an audience with Joseph. And when they realize that it was their brother that they were actually talking to, they become afraid, they begin to tremble. They think that Joseph is going to have them killed. And he says, might be one of the most well-known verses, at least in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where he tells his brothers, which you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And you just need to know this morning that maybe what Satan, what the enemy means for evil, maybe what other people have done for you meant for evil, God means for good. And we see that again in the gospel. The most horrific thing that could possibly happen, that God himself would come and be killed by his own creation, is the very providence that makes it possible for us to have faith and experience the goodness of God. You see, providence sounds really good, right? It encourages us that God cares for us, but it's meaningless if Jesus didn't actually come to do, to prove to us that this is actually a true statement. And so as I end... I would love to give you, if you're suffering right now, if life is really hard for you right now, I would love to give you three reasons why you can trust God in the midst of difficulty. But I don't have that. I think sometimes we just need to be honest that life sucks. We need to be honest that life feels like hell. And sometimes we have to do just like the the giants of old in Hebrews 11 had to do. They simply had to have faith that God was good and that their reward that was coming to them was greater than anything they could ask or imagine. And this is why Christ came. We're going to walk out of here this morning and you're still going to be in the same situation you were when you walked in. But I want you and I to remember that in the midst of all of that, that God cares and that he's near to us. And this is not just a make-believe, feel-good story. We know it's true because Christ came. Because Christ came. There are no accidents in the providence of God. And sometimes it is actually the pain and suffering in our lives that is God's grace to us because it reveals to us our need for him. It helps us rely on him, the only one that can actually give to us what we actually desire, which is grace and forgiveness from God himself. And one day, the ability to be in his kingdom where there's no more pain and suffering. And we are able to do that not by trying really hard, not by paying really good people, but by trusting in the providence of God and what he has done through Christ. Again, there are no accidents in God's providence. Let's pray.